Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Epstein versus Obama. Just kidding. But Richard, you are involved in legal proceedings taking place in Chicago, where former President Obama is attempting to build his presidential center in Jackson Park. That has occasioned a good amount of opposition, not because of people who are necessarily Obama critics. In fact, you can tell me, but my guess is probably more of these people share his politics than not, but because there are concerns that Barack Obama, the private citizen, is trying to circumvent a lot of the kinds of regulations and restrictions that Barack Obama, the president of the United States, probably would have supported. Explain what the underlying dispute is here. Well, it's a little bit complicated, but answering to the first question, if you're talking about Hyde Park and opposition, uh, there are no Republicans to speak of in Hyde Park. So virtually every person with whom I've worked in one capacity or another has actually supported uh, Obama in two presidential elections. Uh, The second point is all of them are actually in favor of having an Obama presidential center on the south side of Chicago. Indeed, uh, we have gone to some concerns considerable lengths to try and actually design a facility that would meet every one of his technical specifications uh, for programmatic stuff and so forth, and have put together a plan, which we will reveal, I hope, in due course, which indicates how there's a site, a perfectly suitable site, a superior site, uh, to the west of Washington Park, uh, which could hold it. It's a site which has much better access to transportation. It doesn't have huge water problems, which you will face if you're trying to build a 235-story building within a couple of feet of a lagoon, uh, which is connected to Lake Michigan, which is uh, rising. It is much more accessible to community development in the sense that if you look at the vacant land around there on which you could put shops and stores and so forth, there are ample spaces in the immediate vicinity of the Washington Park site, that is to the west. There's none near the other side, which in fact is going to create a traffic nightmare uh, because in order to get maximum visibility for the site, the Obamas want to locate it where it's cheek by chow with the Griffin Museum of Science and Industry. There's already a serious traffic problem without the Obama Foundation, but it's going to get worse because what you have to do is to eliminate a large portion of the roads, uh, over half of them, in fact, uh, while you're going to try to increase the traffic that could be held by the roads that remain. Uh, This whole thing will cost at least several hundred million dollars to put into play. And if you take any reasonable um, estimate as to the amount of delay per car that is is going to be required, you're talking 10 to 15 minutes every day each way uh, for people who have to go north from Indiana or from southern Chicago to the downtown loop. So, I mean, yes, I mean, this thing has really generated a lot of opposition. Uh, Most of my liberal friends, when I talk to them, uh, think that, you know, we ought to deify him to the west of Washington Park. Uh, The people I know, almost none of them actually support the Jackson Park site. Uh, But there are a large number of people, including the mayor of the city of Chicago, uh, Miss Lori Lightfoot, um, who's very much keen on doing that. And the Obama Foundation, of course, is a very powerful organization. So they're constantly trying to keep the drumbeat going. Uh, The latest estimate they make is that they think they could get this thing done by 2025. But that's only on the assumption that the litigation will disappear. And the litigation is not going to disappear. Uh, There are at least four different avenues that 
are now being pursued, all of which will come to fruition in the next month or two, um, which means that it's going to be a long struggle. In fact, I think they have the weaker argument on virtually all of the points, especially those that have to do with the application of, of federal environmental statutes to what goes on in Jackson Park, most notably the Transportation Act of 1966, about which myself and Michael Rackless, my cold counsel, prepared on behalf of Herb Kaplan, the president of Protect Our Parks, a very detailed statement, which we sent to Deep Buttigieg, who is under a duty to decide whether or not to approve this project. And it's important to understand that it's not a free call. He may approve it, quote, only if there is no prudent or feasible alternative to the use of that land, and the program includes all possible planning to minimize harm to the park or historical site. Jackson Park is so much inferior to the site near Washington Park that you cannot make the argument that there's no prudent and feasible alternative. And so under the plain terms of the statute, the program, I think, has to be rejected. Richard, I can imagine some of your intellectual sympathists listening to this and thinking, well, this doesn't sound like something that really works me up into a a libertarian lather. The thinking amongst free market types tends to be that there are way too many restrictions on land use and development. Now, obviously, we're talking about public space here, which changes the equation some. But can you tell us why a case like this appeals to you, given the issues that are at play? Yes. I mean, you just hit it. There's a vast difference between public and private land. Uh, With respect to private lands, the key question is to make sure that the people who build do not create actionable um, externalities to their neighbors, that there are adequate ways to enter the property from public streets and so forth, uh, that the structures are sound so that they don't fall over. And the modern zoning codes go ever so much beyond all of that. So what they do is they create a kind of systematic favoritism there's nothing more common than to have somebody on one side of the street get the people on the other side of the street so that their land is zoned so that they cannot become direct uh, competitors of people who are there. Public land is held, in my view, in public trust. And it would be utterly impermissible to say that we're going to convey outright 20 acres of land to Obama and charge him nothing for it. And they're doing tantamount to that, but they don't call it an outright conveyance. Uh, originally, they called this a lease but a lease for a long term is equivalent for regulatory purposes, since Roman law, of course, um, uh, to the conveyance of the fee. So what they did is they called this thing a use agreement, uh, but that's a false description because it's an exclusive use agreement. Nobody else could use it without their situation. And exclusive use for a period of time is the definition of a lease. Uh, so they would be caught by that doctrine. The standard rules with respect to public trust property is the same as it is with respect to private property held in trust. You can not alienate for a song uh, property that's held in trust to an outsider. What you must do is receive an equivalent back into the trust of what is lost. Uh, the Obamas themselves have not even attempted to do that. $10 for a 99-year lease is not full consideration. The land, as best we could tell, if it were ever to be auctioned off for private purposes, would get something in north of a million per acre given its location and so forth. And so that would be just a dissipation of public asset. This is not the first time that Michael Rackless and I have been involved in this. Uh, 17 years ago, the question was whether or not you put a toilet bowl or a spaceship on top of historic uh, a soldier field. Ironically, given the rules as they were understood at that particular time, you could not attack that on aesthetic grounds since you were not changing the road structure around it. You couldn't attack it on the grounds that the transportation project was involved. We did plead a public trust argument. Michael argued that case, and uh, we got thumped uh, 
by the Illinois Supreme Court in a decision that we both regard as somewhat suspect, because the bottom line of it in that case was that when they uh, transformed Soldier Field, it was going to cost $600 million in public funds uh, to create an asset which would give the McCaskies uh, $300 million of private benefit. So there was a net loss. And to finance this, you didn't get the money from the McCaskey family, but you did as you got it from a variety of taxes, including taxes on hotels, retail, and all sorts of other things. So we've been at this for a long time, and there is no public trust issue uh, when you're talking about private parties owning private land. And at that point, the Obamas can do pretty much what they want, and I would be very strongly opposed to somebody coming up with a modification of the zoning ordinance in an effort to try to preclude its um, construction in those particular sites. This is not a question of whether I support the mission of the program. It's a question of whether or not I recognize that they, like everybody else, has a perfect right to build on private lands. And I would think that the zoning laws in these cases should not be applied to them. I don't think they would be. I'm sure the city of Chicago would support it. What I'm very troubled about is if you actually look at this whole project, even before you get to the law, the net cost to the city of Chicago in terms of outright expenditures, we don't even know what they are in the lease, lost profits from the sale of property, traffic stuff, cutting down a thousand old growth trees and proposing to put into their place saplings that are about two and a half inches uh, wide, you know, one one thousandth the diameter and the area of these other trees. Um, all that stuff is what really gets us. And the city of Chicago is in desperate financial straits and uh, its most prominent citizen, part-time citizen to be sure, uh, should not be, I think, the person who receives lavish subsidies um, uh, from hardworking people with respect to this land. The Obama ambition even goes further. There's always been talk that he'd like to put a golf course in Jackson Park, which is located further south. Um, there's a perfectly serviceable community course. Most of its users are, in fact, African-American, and he wants to make it a course in which he and Tiger Woods could entertain champion golf tournaments, one of the majors and so forth. Uh, That is no longer on the table, but it may yet come back if this center is done. And I just think it's unconscionable uh, to take these public resources, which are being used in a pretty efficient fashion, and put these things in their place when they're cheaper and more sensible private alternatives outside the park. So that's the moral case. The statutory cases, what I've said is you could avoid these difficulties by going elsewhere. Uh, You are obliged to do so. And it turns out that the Secretary of Transportation cannot give his consent to a project which doesn't meet these things. And if he tries to do so, uh, then what happens is he's subject to suit in court uh, because his decision would regard it not only as arbitrary and capricious, but clearly contrary to law. I mean, you look at the statute and you look at this proposal and it doesn't take a legal gymnast on interpretation to figure out that this runs afoul of the law. And the same thing is true with respect to other federal statutes, the NEPA statute on the environment and the Natural Historic Preservation Act starting to deal with historical sites of which the Frederick Law Olmsted Park in Jackson Park is one of his great creations. This is the same guy who put together Central Park. He's the greatest landscape architect. And you're going to gut the whole situation here by putting this out of character uh, tower and a series of other buildings, many of which don't even have to be there, like a Chicago public library on this particular site, and then chop off another take of 10 acres of the thing in order to build a road system which you would never put into place unless you wanted to put the center up. And the city's position, just to make it very clear, is the environmental statutes have no application to the destruction of everything in Jackson Park. Those are, quote, local matters. The only thing that the federal government can do is examine the roadways that are going to be reconstructed. That 
is so far off base with respect to the way these statutes have been interpreted. And it just boggles the mind to think that a text this clear uh, could be read in a way which allows the Secretary of Transportation to approve a project which is in clear conflict with the statutory commands. So let me close with this question to Chicago's perhaps second most prominent part-time resident, Richard. We zoom out a bit, picking up on something that you said earlier. You've spent a lot of your life in Chicago. Uh, Chicago is a city that generates a lot of affection from a lot of people, but you will not see it on a list of any great urban success stories of late. Similarly, any list of dysfunctional states will usually yield up Illinois within about the first three seconds. Looking back on the, the decades that you've spent in that city and in that state, how would you describe to an outsider what has happened? Well, what happens is there are sound principles of government, which essentially say that when you're running a public service, you try to minimize the number of employees that you put on the payroll, not maximize them. And that means, in effect, that you would not have the kind of enormous pension problem that plagues both the state and the city uh, because of the utter promiscuous use of this. It shows the danger of one-party rule. Uh, I noticed today that Michael Madigan resigned, uh, praising his great achievements. I think, in fact, uh, his 36 years as a Speaker of the House of Representatives corresponds very closely with the decline of everything that takes place in Illinois. Um, I think, in effect, that there have been very few efforts to try and encourage investment and capital to come inside the state. Um, there are a lot of restrictions that take place through unions, a lot of restrictions that take place through various kinds of land use uh, type of situation. I think everybody in the state tends to be progressive, and so they're so keen on the question of redistribution uh, that they don't worry about the question of exit, which dominates it. So just to give you a kind of a point of reference, in 1940, Illinois had 29 electoral votes, uh, just as New York had 47. It's a progressive state, and I think now the number of electoral votes is 20, uh, but that conceals the gap because it's really 27 Congress members down to 18 over this 80-year period, and they're probably going to lose one or more votes in this particular case. Why is that? Because Illinois features a huge exit rate. Where are these people going? They're going to Tennessee. They're going to Texas. They're going maybe to some of the mountain states. They're going to Indiana. They're going to Wisconsin. Illinois cannot keep people because it's just impossible for folks to figure out how you do business in the state. So somebody watches this, and if you're an investor and you see that you know you've got a state in desperate situation, trying to lavish huge sums of money on a favorite son paying for all the litigation that has to be done to do this. You say to yourself, why would I want to locate a business or a plant in a state like this when, in fact, I could be caught in the more of these kinds of politics? And, you know, it's much harder to exit the United States than it is to exit Illinois or any other state. So you're going to see smaller population drops, although you'll start to see one. But the other thing that everybody seems to forget about this, both at the national and the state level, is you cannot regulate people who are not located and doing business within your state, and you start announcing what's going on in this particular fashion, and people just won't come. I've spoken to more businessmen than you could shake a stick at, saying why it is they would never locate anything in California. And Illinois is starting to get that kind of a reputation as well. And you have a governor who wants to impose, right, essentially graduated taxes. Uh, Interestingly enough, most of the people switched sides on that issue, and they voted it down fairly thoroughly. But now Pritzker 
is coming back with a bunch of business tax. What he's congenitally incapable of doing is to doing a very close look at the public service in an effort to cut some of the expenditures that have taken place, which have increased enormously on a per capita basis. Uh, so the full burden that you have to face in a city is measured by a combination of regulation on the one hand and taxation on the other. Illinois is does miserably on both of those places. And so what people come in and say, why do I want to move to a state where I'm going to have to pay implicitly $50,000 in pension for every member of my family because of the accrued liability? They have to change course. Mr. Pritzker, it's beyond his capability to think small. When Bruce Rauner tried to do it, he got trounced by just about everybody. The mayor is exactly in the same frame of mind. And so, you know, we are leaving Chicago, not because of this, but because of family reasons. But let me just sort of mention the clear situation. Real estate values in the loop, uh, where our house have, have declined by about 30 or 40%, depends on whom you ask and what property is, in the last 18 months. And the question is, why has this happened? And you could mention, first of all, there were the uncontrolled riots that were associated with the a George Floyd incident. Then there are the absolutely ramshackle politics that start to take place. And then there's the very sort of clumsy response that's taken place with respect to COVID. And you put all of these things together and you start to see the move to the door. They have to reverse these kinds of policies. Uh, the real estate taxes in Illinois are probably higher than they are just about anywhere in the country. Uh, it's not sustainable uh, for somebody to do this. You can beg, you can plead. Um, I've lived in the state for a long time. I've often argued these particular points. Everybody says, no, there's a tomorrow. Uh, but it turns out now the state is facing a genuine crisis, as is the city. I hope they get their act together. The mayor was much more sensible. Uh, the second George Floyd situation, which was just an outright riot that took place, and she's not talking about defunding the police and other things like that. Uh, but uh, if you have progressive government uh, consistently applied without opposition, you're going to look like New York California, Illinois, and New Jersey, and Michigan. Uh, the correlations are too strong. The pattern has failed, and people have to basically get their act together and start to think about the virtues of small government if they want to have a chance uh, to have a large and prosperous economy. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit Hoover.org.